Well, we are embarking on a new series starting today, and it'll go until Advent. Uh, We're going to be going through the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to do this in four parts over the next two and a half years. And so we'll go through Mark for a season, and then the church calendar will start, and we'll go through different things in that season. We'll pick Mark back up. We'll put it down over the summer and then pick back Mark, Mark back up. We realize that sounds a little crazy, but uh, we'll do a lot to help you stay within the story uh, when we put it down and put it back up. And so we're in the first part of Mark, and this will be the first sermon in the Gospel of Mark. And I realize um, you might be wondering, well, why the Gospel of Mark? And it's because the question, who is Jesus, is a relentless question. Uh, it's a question that has been asked Uh, throughout the centuries. It's a question that's still asked today, and it just doesn't seem to go away, does it? And there's a lot of different answers that are given, and they recur over and over throughout the centuries, and they're still present today. You get answers like this. Well, Jesus was a good man. He was a teacher. You get more skeptical answers. Uh, Jesus, uh, he was a self-deluded prophet, or he was uh, an exaggeration of his disciples' imaginations, or more silly, uh, Jesus didn't exist at all, which is just ridiculous. But um, These are some of the propositions to the answer of who is Jesus. Uh, But if we want to grapple with who Jesus really is, then I think we need to grapple with Jesus on his own terms. And the best way to do that is to turn to the literature produced closest to his life, which is the Gospels. And the Gospels are the historical, firsthand eyewitness accounts of his life. And you might be wondering, well, how do we know this? Take the Gospel of Luke, for example. The beginning of his Gospel, this is what Luke writes. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So Luke is saying many people are doing this, writing down what Jesus has done. Just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Luke is saying that narratives have been written, people have been writing it down, and that he's compiling it and producing an orderly account of the things that the eyewitnesses saw themselves. And the Gospel of Mark is likewise a collection of eyewitness testimony. Uh, While this has been disputed in recent years, there's good reason to believe that Mark was a disciple of the Apostle Peter. Uh, The same Mark that Peter calls his son in the faith in 1 Peter 5.13. Mark's gospel is a recording then of Peter's experiences and teachings with Jesus. And you should know that the early church widely accepted this. It wasn't disputed. Uh, And the evidence we have shows that this wasn't just uh, the, the opinion of one geographical location of the early church. But that this uh, view of authorship of Mark spread throughout the early church and locations independent of one another. So it was widely accepted that Mark was a disciple of the Apostle Peter and that he was recording Peter's experiences with Jesus and teachings. But whether or not you accept this traditional view of authorship isn't really the point. Mark is still regarded as among our earliest historical records about who Jesus was and who Jesus is. And since the question, who was Jesus, is still being asked today, uh, and because we still believe that it has implications for us, implications for our city, implications for the world, we're going to spend some time in Mark's gospel. And so today we start with Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and this is the first half of Mark's prologue. And we'll deal with the second half next week. And in the prologue, Mark lays down his cards. 
He gives the reader of his gospel the inside scoop. And it's important to realize this because as readers of his gospel, we have a perspective that the people within the gospel don't have. And so as we go through his gospel, we have the inside scoop. We have the knowledge that people are grappling with and trying to come to terms with. And it's an invitation then for us to wrestle and grapple with the same questions they asked. How could this man be the son of God? What does that mean for my life? And and Mark's gospel gives us an example, a historical example of how people have wrestled with the reality of Jesus. And so today, the big idea I want to explore is this. There was only one way for Jesus as king. But the challenge for us then is that there is only one way to Jesus as king. And so to get to the heart of this, uh, this morning I want to look at the conditions of the gospel I want to look at the location of the gospel, and I want to look at the way of the gospel. So open your Bibles up with me to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Mark writes this, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, Let's start with the conditions of the gospel. When you go to Matthew's gospel, it starts with genealogy. He traces Jesus' lineage back to Abraham. Uh, Luke's gospel, um, it starts with Jesus' family history, you know, stories uh, from within that family. And then he gives a genealogy later in his gospel that traces Jesus all the way back to Adam. Uh, John, he just goes for it. He goes straight to creation, right? He starts with creation and then tells the gospel from there. But Mark, Mark's a little bit more to the point. He goes straight into Jesus' public ministry with no background story. He He wants people to understand from the get-go that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Son of God, and he wants people to know this with certainty, and that's why he writes the gospel, because he thinks the ministry of Jesus demonstrates the truth of this reality. So who is Jesus Christ? Mark says he is the Christ, he's the Son of God. And we're so used to saying Jesus Christ that we treat Christ like it's a last name. You know, we think, okay, Jesus was named Jesus Horatio Christ, Jesus H. Christ, and uh, that's not the case. Uh, Christ means anointed king, or it means Messiah. You know, in Jewish ears, they would hear Messiah. And so uh, Mark is saying Jesus is Messiah. Mark is rooting the gospel of Jesus in the ancient hope of Israel's story that a king would come someday, a king who would take every mountain and make it level, take every plain and make it high, uh, a king who would turn the world upside down and heal it of its brokenness and the mess and the injustice that ravages it, and that this king would establish an everlasting rule of peace and justice and righteousness. This Messiah king was to come, and Mark is saying that king has come. Mark is saying the Messiah has come. Mark is saying Jesus is king. And so to the original readers of Mark's gospel, when they hear Christ, they would have a very clear image of what that meant, the king of Israel that we're waiting for. But to say that Jesus is the son of God wouldn't have been quite as clear. The scriptures, after all, at times call angels sons of God, and they even call people sons of God. So what does Mark mean exactly when he calls Jesus the son of God? Well, this is the key um, to his whole gospel. And so to help us understand what he means, Mark turns to the prophets. He writes, verses 2 through 4, As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. 
What's interesting is Mark's actually taking uh, three prophetic quotes here, something from Exodus, Malachi, and Isaiah, and he says, as it's written in Isaiah, meaning Isaiah is the one that will help you understand what's going on here. And Isaiah 40, verse 3 reads, A voice cries out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight a de- in the desert a highway for our God. You see, the word for Lord in the Hebrew is Yahweh. Isaiah is talking about the God of the universe making an appearance to Israel. And, and a way is being prepared eventually for that to happen. And Mark is explicit. John the Baptist is the one Preparing the way. He's the voice crying out. And who is he preparing the way for? Jesus. Jesus is the long-expected king who has come. But this same king is none other than Lord. He is none other than the creator of the universe making an appearance in a person. That's what Mark means by the Son of God. God in the flesh. In other words, God incarnates. The metaphysical has become physical. The immortal has become mortal. The unapproachable has become someone you can touch, someone you can hug. The totally invulnerable has become radically vulnerable. The impossible has become possible. This is a bombshell. This is a total surprise. From Mark's perspective, the gospel of Jesus all begins with Scripture being fulfilled. Jesus can't be understood outside of the context of Israel's Scriptures uh, coming to this moment. But it means then that the gospel comes to us in a place of expectation and a place of surprise. Expectation and surprise. They were expecting the king to come, but they're surprised by how the king has come. Say you were born at the end of the 1800s. You know, a simpler time of top hats and monocles. And your father, he promises you, because you're a family of some means, that when you grow up, you'll have your own transportation. So immediately you think, well, I'm going to have a horse, you know, and a buggy, and and, you know, I wouldn't mind if there's some, like, gold-laced, you know, frilly stuff on the side of the buggy. That would be very nice and classy for the times. And you grew up, and the automobile is invented. And so your father, he fulfills his promise. He buys you a car. You see, you expected a horse, but the promise fulfilled is a car. It wasn't in the paradigm of your thinking. You couldn't have imagined that when the promise was first made. This is similar to what Israel would have felt when they experienced God fulfilling what the prophets had foretold. God had made a promise, but they couldn't have fathomed how God would have fulfilled that promise. Israel, they expected a king. They also expected that God one day would make an appearance, but they did not expect that the king would be the Messiah and that the Messiah would be the Lord. This was the surprise. You see, God... Becoming a human being was antithetical to everything they had been taught. It wasn't on their radar. It wasn't an expectation. It's utterly shocking, and it's a paradigm shift for them. And it's a surprise that turns religion upside down. It's a surprise that turns religion upside down. Why? Well, take Hinduism and Buddhism. Uh, They teach that there's a, a divine spark in everybody that the divine incarnates all the time, all over the world, but it does so, so much that the divine can get lost because it's too human. Whereas Islam and and Judaism say, no, no, no. God is so transcendent and so unfathomably holy and other that he couldn't possibly incarnate within humanity. He couldn't intertwine with humans like this. But here the divine is so removed that God becomes unreachable and even in some forms unknowable. We can only speak of God by negation, by what we know God isn't to be. 
But the gospel, the gospel is different. It says, yes, God is so transcendent. God is so holy. God is so other that he doesn't incarnate all the time. He's not a divine spark in all of us. But God is also so loving and so caring and so passionate about what he has created that he will not stay removed from us. He incarnated once, uniquely in Jesus. And that's why God can be known. We can't reach him. He came to us. But he came to us uniquely so that he could be known. You see, the, the, the incarnation, it turns religion upside down, and it says God came to us because we can't come to him. Every, every religion at its core, and even some forms of Christianity, um, is about how we can get to God. And I think this typical crit critique actually holds some weight. Uh, people say that uh, many people go to religion out of fear. You know, whether it's... Uh, that they need rules or guidance, or they need hope because they're afraid of death. Uh, their fundamental motivator is some form of fear. You know, God is up there and out there, and we have work to do. And so if you want to reach the divine, what do you have to do? Buddhism says, the Eightfold Path. Islam, the Five Pillars. Judaism, the Ten Commandments. Confucianism, uh, filiopiety, and all that that entails. Hinduism, the Eight Steps of Yoga. You know, that's how you can reach the divine. That's what you have to do. And depending on how well you get it down, how well you perform, that will determine your sense of hope. That will determine your standing with God. But what happens is actually more fear. You can never be certain about where you stand. You can never know for certain how God looks at you, favorably or unfavorably. And when religion is pursued out of fear, it only breeds more fear. But the gospel says, here's how you can be certain. That the divine has reached you. God incarnated. Jesus has come. Not when you were expecting it. Not on your own terms. Not based on how well you were even searching for it. In fact, the gospel goes far to say that you could have never reached God. You couldn't do it. And he has come and it is grace. And here's how you can know where you stand with God. He has come and he stands with you. He makes himself known. He shows you a better way than fear, a better way than rules, a better way than religion. And it's good news. That's why uh, Mark says the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, it's, pro it's a proclamation of what has happened. It's not the good advice of Jesus Christ. And it's news that births joy. It's joyful. It births gratitude when it gets into your heart, when you understand it. You're no longer motivated by fear to pursue God or to pursue truth. You're motivated by joy, by gratitude, by overwhelming thankfulness. And so when Jesus came, when God incarnated, he met an expectant people, and he surprised them with how he fulfilled his promises, and the surprise made religion unravel, and even the religion he incarnated within. But maybe you feel that the conditions have changed today. You hear about this expectation of God to fulfill promises, the surprise of the incarnation, the unraveling of religion, and what do you think? So what? You're not expectant. You just don't care. You're not surprised. You're apathetic. Here's the thing. If the conditions of the gospel don't speak to you, if you can't relate to the surprise and the expectation, the location of the gospel will speak to you. Trust me, the location will speak to you because the location is fundamental to humanity. It's fundamental to every human experience in this room. We'll move to my second point, the location of the gospel. Mark says there will be a voice crying out, preparing the way, but what does the voice say? Where do we locate that voice? Look at verses 4 through 6. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness 
and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. The gospel starts in the wilderness. Now that doesn't sound so bad, does it? Because when you hear the word wilderness, you think of forest. You know, you think of beautiful outdoors of British Columbia. You think of camping. The gospel starts with a great camping trip in the forest. Who doesn't want to sign up for that? Uh, This is something you can buy into. But don't think of a forest when you hear the word wilderness. In the Greek, it's more accurately translated desert. It's barren. It's dry. It's a It's a place that cannot sustain life. Uh, It's a place of thorns. Nothing grows. It's a place of thirst. All the wells are dry. Uh, It's a place of terrible loneliness that can't support community or life. And in general, throughout the scriptures, God meets his people in this place, in the wilderness. Moses, where does he meet God? In the desert, in the wilderness, burning bush. Now, Jacob, where does he wrestle with God? In the wilderness. Israel, where do they receive the commandments? Sinai, where's Sinai? In the wilderness. Elijah, where does he hear the small voice of God? Mountain, where? In the wilderness. We could go on and on and on, but why does God meet people in the wilderness? Why does the gospel start in the wilderness? Because the wilderness is a place where everything is stripped away from you. And the substance of your life is exposed. The foundation of your life is put on display. It's a place where you recognize that all wells do go dry without God. All bread will go moldy without the bread of heaven. It's in the wilderness that we learn that God isn't just an add-on. He's not a supplement. That without him, there is no life, period. And in our lives, we generally only meet God in the wilderness. And to enter into that wilderness is to see that there's a thirst in your life that is not being assuaged. There is a desire uh, in your life that cannot be met. Uh, There's a fundamental longing within you that's being unfulfilled. In the classic words of C.S. Lewis, uh, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that uh, what they do want and want acutely is something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sort of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some object that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. What is C.S. Lewis saying? When something you looked to as the real hope of your life, the real source of your life, the thing that makes you feel like a worthwhile person, the thing that took your focus and affections and joy, when you attain that thing, Love, travel, whatever. What happens? It can't really satisfy. And sometimes, sometimes we think it satisfies, don't we? We feel like we finally have it for a moment. But what happens when it doesn't last? What happens when the love runs out or when the love leaves? What happens when there's nowhere left to see or that you don't have the means anymore to go see any places? What finally happens when you get to that dream job and there's no more ladders to climb? What happens when that job's taken away from you? What happens then when that thing that we thought would satisfy crumbles in front of us? Well, maybe you start experiencing emotional collapse. You start 
finding it difficult to relate to people. You fi- start finding it um, trouble, you know, making commitments. Uh, you have trouble even liking yourself. You know, you're having some really dark thoughts about yourself. And you may even say, well, I'm not a religious person. But yes, you were. You were, because that thing was your king. That thing that was satisfying you ended up becoming your religion, and you gave everything you had in your life to seeing that thing fulfill you. And now that it's gone, you crumble. So what do you do? You start searching again. You start looking for something to satisfy. Maybe you say, I'm empty. I need something. And so what do you do? You turn to religion. But it doesn't make you any better. Why? Because you're not actually living any differently than you were before. You still are living as if there's something you have to do to find satisfaction in your life. Something you have to do in order to be accepted, in order to be worthwhile. Because you approach religion, you say, well, I'm going to be really good at this. I'm going to keep all the rules. I'm going to serve at every project. I'm going to build up my spiritual resume so that I can feel good about myself at the end of the day. But you're still self-saving yourself. And it's not the way of the gospel. It's not about what we can do or how well we can perform or anything remotely like that. Mark says, the way for Jesus was being prepared by John. And people, they're going out into the wilderness in droves to see this prophet, this holy man, this man who seems to have abandoned all the conventions of society, but who has a message from God, and they want to go because he seems to have all the answers. He seems to have an in with God. This guy gets it. He's done it. He's worthy of following, and maybe if I could just do what he does, I'll feel that same connection with God. So you'll eat the locusts if you have to. You know, you'll... you'll, uh, you'll What's it? Honey. You'll eat the honey. You'll, you'll wear the camel's hair as long as it's made by uh, Gucci or whatever that brand is called. And you'll live you know, simply. You'll do what you have to do. You'll follow this religious man's example. You will try to do it. But that's not what you would hear John say. You wouldn't hear say, John saying, emulate me. He doesn't. He doesn't say become like me. He doesn't say follow me. He, he, he actually says repent, which means change your mind. Change your mind about how you've been living in its entirety. Change your mind. Ask for forgiveness. Be forgiven by God and be baptized. This incredible man, people are flocking out to see, that Jesus himself says, I tell you among those born of women, none is greater than John. This great, great man, what does he say of himself? Look at verses 7 through 8. After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John says, I am not worthy. John, the man that Jesus says, no greater man than this, says, I'm not worthy. Think about that. A man who is pious and religious by all standards, a man who is sacrificing and doing the right thing, says he's not even worthy to do the most meager task of a servant. He's not worthy of the one who comes after him. He's not worthy of Jesus, which means what? It means there's nothing you can do to get to God. There's nothing you can do to get God to come to you. All your performance, all the right words, all the right actions will never make you worthy of him. Because before the king, we are all unworthy. And it's only the king who can make us worthy. 
It's only the king who can baptize us with the Holy Spirit, which means to bring us into the very life of God. It's only the king who can set us right with himself. And so you see, the gospel only really makes sense in the right location. That's why the gospel meets us in the wilderness. That's why people so often come to faith when things start falling apart in their lives or when everything has come together, but they still don't feel satisfied. Which brings me to my last point, the way of the gospel. Because we recognize we need a king to reign. We need a king to satisfy. But what is the way of this king? What is the way of King Jesus? John prepares a way. As it was foretold, you know, prepare a way in the wilderness. It can be a road, it can be a highway, you know, and any of those are fair translations. And this meant a lot in the ancient world because when a king established his, his dominion, highways would be paved across the, the nations, you know, to welcome the king from city to city to city. But how were these highways made to celebrate the king and exalt him? In scripture, on the backs of slaves. You know, a king wasn't always good news. A king actually meant you were probably going to lose your freedom. And for us, in our modern you know, political paradigm, kingship just isn't, doesn't make sense. You know? we, it, this sort of metaphor about God, this idea of a king, it makes us afraid that we're actually going to lose our freedom. So how can a king satisfy us if he's going to take our freedom away, we ask? Won't we just become more discontent? Uh, will the quality of life even be any better than this somewhat dissatisfied life that I'm living. But hear me, this is not the way of Jesus as king. Every other time the word uh, for road or the way is used in the Gospel of Mark from here on out, it's always in reference to the cross. The way being prepared for this king is the cross. That's where this is all heading. The only way for Jesus, for God to incarnate, for God to walk on this earth, the only way God chose to walk is the way of the cross. The repentance and the forgiveness that John's telling people about, it's only possible because God walked the way of the cross. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, sharing in the life of God, having a right relationship with God is only possible because of the cross. You see, Jesus, he's not a king who's going to coerce us with his power. He's a king who serves. He's a king who lays down his life. He's a king who sacrifices and dies so that his people can actually be free. He offers then real freedom, real joy, actual satisfaction. But the only way to God, then, is by following the path that he paved. And it'll lead us to the cross. It'll lead us to see that Jesus went into the wilderness for our sake. That he emptied himself for our sake. That he was abandoned for our sake. That he became desolate for our sake. That he went thirsty for our sake. He went into the wilderness and lost his connection to the Father on the cross so that we could go into our little wildernesses and find God. But it's only by encountering him on this way to the cross that we can actually find this truth. The only way to God, then, is through the way of the cross paved by the Son of God. There's no other place to find God except God crucified for us. And there's no way, then, to deserve what he did. We could never be worthy. No religion fully anticipated this moment, even though God predicted it. This was a pure gift of grace. 
And it ends every single attempt that we might ever make to try to pursue God. God came to us, but the way in which he came to us was marked by walking to the cross and being crucified for us. That's King Jesus. And what does it make us say? If we really get it, if we have a moment of clarity and see how he laid down his life for us, what does it make us say? I'm unworthy. Unworthy. But even when we were unworthy, God so loved us that he did it. And the rest of Mark's gospel is an invitation to start grasping and wrestling with that reality. The God of the universe, the creator of the universe, walked among us in the person of Jesus, but the way in which he walked, the way in which was prepared for him was the cross. So we're going to wrestle with that for several weeks together. But today... I want to say this, if you've come in here with a sense of unworthiness, you're going to hear a few messages from culture. Oh, no, 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 you're a good person. Don't worry about it. Oh, you shouldn't talk about those sort of things. Oh, let there be light. Uh, but what you'll hear in the message of the gospel is you are unworthy. But not in a way that shames you. In a way that says you are unworthy. There are issues in your life but I love you, and I came for you, and I'll walk this path for you. And so the gospel then imparts a worthiness to us that cannot be taken away, an acceptance that cannot be robbed from us, a sense of identity that can be found nowhere else. That's what's available in King Jesus.